0: Good morning all. So awesome to be here with you and you here with me. Um, I would just like to have a stop and to pray before we jump into the Word today um, that our hearts and our minds would receive um, some of the difficult truths that are going to be brought about by the Word. Um, So to do so, let's uh, go to our Lord. Father, we come to you today and we just thank you that you are so good and God, that you speak into every aspect of our life. You, you speak into the hidden things. You speak into the visible things. And, uh, and Lord God, I, I just thank you that, um, I thank you for my salvation. I thank you that when I was 21, that you drew me to salvation and that I submitted my life to you. And, and God, my life has not been the same since. And I thank you that every one of us who is listening to this right now can have a spiritual, that we can battle spiritually so that we can live victoriously. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Um, well, I just know that today's going to add such value to your life. There's going to be a little tension today. There's going to be a little awkwardness today. Um, but it's, it's biblical, and we're going to go through this together. Um, so, uh, so here we go. First, we're going to start in not an awkward way. Um, but I want to ask you this question. Um, maybe it's awkward for some. I don't know. But uh, not awkward for the same reasons. But I want to ask you this question. Who grew up with Sesame Street? Anyone? Raise your hand. says, who has an awareness of Sesame Street? Who's kind of embarrassed to admit that they have any connection and knowledge of? A few. Thank you for your honesty. It's like, I I grew up in the age of Sesame Street, and um, of course, it was, I didn't really get to watch a lot of TV when I was a kid, but that's one of the things I did get to see, and I was kind of drawn into all of that. Now, I want to ask you another question. This is a little bit more personal. We may not know each other well enough for you to be honest with me about this next one, but if... If they're, out of all the characters on Sesame Street, on the count of three, I want you to tell me the character that you most identify with, right? On Sesame Street. I know, I know, I know, I know. We, we haven't had a chance to really sit and talk this out much. Um, so I said on the count of three, following directions, come on. So, but what we're gonna do is on the count of three, I want you to tell me the one that you most connect with, right? So some, hopefully you have it in your mind. And here we go. One, two, three. There you go. Some of y'all just like to eat. I know that's what that's about. I, uh, I, I was, for some reason, my attention was always drawn to Burton and Ernie, and I always thought of my brother and myself as far as like that's one I connected with. But, but I would tell you the most, I think, uh, the, a couple things about Sesame Street that I think is interesting is how it's transcended the generations. Like when my son was little. It was the whole Tickle Me Elmo phase. You all remember that? Anybody else think that was incredibly weird? Anyone? Yeah. I just thought it was really weird. And I used to, you know, it was Sesame Street, so it was fairly harmless. And of course, I think for that that particular Christmas, it was the, the gift to get your kid. I don't even know why we follow these things, but we do. So we got like the Tickle Me Elmo and he, I don't know, I don't know if he wanted it or not, but everybody else was doing it. So we thought, well, that's what he needs because everybody else has got it. So we get a, a Tickle Me Elmo. And the thing, the reason why I tell you that is that thing was quite possibly the most annoying toy of all time because it never did die. You're exactly right. It's like with a Tickle Me Elmo, just, just in case y'all need some schooling right now, I'm gonna give it to you. A Tickle Me Elmo was a thing that you'd be able to pick it up and it would, it would be able to sense you picking it up and holding it. And then it would, ee, it would giggle and then wiggle back and forth and it would light up. Now, as a parent, you know this. You know that those types of, those types of toys, you just cannot wait until the battery runs out. You just can't wait. Because those things will scare you half to death in the middle of the night. You go in there checking on, you know, checking on your, your little baby and, or whatever, and you go in there and check on them, and all of a sudden, the vibration of the floor sets off, you know, tickle me Elmo, that thing comes alive, and the light comes on, and it's going crazy, and you hear that, and you think everybody's about to die, and it's happening right now. Like, Tickle me Elmo. But I just have to be really honest with you. Like we made it through that. And eventually, I can't remember if that was one of the things we waited until the battery ran out or we waited until um, he stayed at someone's house um, before it just disappeared. You know, parents, we know that we do this, right? If not, I just gave you a really good idea. I just gave you a really good idea. So I don't remember how that ended. But another thing I remember from, from Sesame Street is Oscar the Grouch. Like Oscar the Grouch. Now, here's the thing. This is not a time to look at the person you came to church with. This is not a time, just keep it looking at me and everything's gonna be fine. Let's keep it between the lanes here because if you're nudging the person next to you, it's probably gonna go bad for you. Lunch is gonna be really awkward, okay? It's just gonna happen, trust me. But you see, I never really understood Oscar the Grouch as a kid. I was like, it's a kid thing. Why in the world would you have... Oscar the Grouch, I'm like, you have all these other characters outside of the count, which is kind of weird, but you have the rest of them, Big Bird, they're all fun, and blah, 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 and yet, I just did not understand Oscar the Grouch, but then, as an adult, I really started to connect with Oscar the Grouch, because how would you feel if you lived in a trash can, right? If you ate trash, I'm sure that you would be grouchy too, I'm sure that you would, But I wanna ask you this question and this is where we're gonna transition, not talk about Sesame Street, we're gonna talk about you and we're gonna talk about me. What do you do when you get grouchy? Or what makes you grouchy? Again, don't look at the person next to you, it's gonna get really awkward, don't. Like what do you do when you get grouchy? Or what situations in your life make you grouchy? Because the reality is this, we don't have to nudge the person next to us to know that they get grouchy if you're, if you're in relation to them and they don't need to nudge you because you both know it about yourselves. We all tend to get grouchy. One of the great things that I, I think we're going to see in this passage today is as we eventually we're going to land in Matthew 4, what we're going to see right in the beginning of this is we're going to see the same things that, that are, are triggers to make us grouchy. We're going to see the, some of the main triggers for us to make us grouchy are things that just getting tired of being exhausted. Those are triggers for us to get grouchy. When we get hungry, some of you hangry, right? And and that triggers us to sometimes get angry. And sometimes it's just when we feel lonely and it's like, we're all by ourselves, or maybe it's just us and and our kids. And yet we're lonely and, and we even have the, the, the potential to be lonely in a room full of people. And sometimes it just creates this inner hostility because we're lonely and yet we can't yet escape the loneliness and we don't know how to get out of it. And yet we tend to be kind of grouchy on these situations. And one of the things we're gonna see is that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are. He was tempted in every way that we are. The ways that we're tempted to be grouchy, by being tired, by being exhausted, by being hangry. He was tempted in every way that we are, but it says in Hebrews four fifteen that he never sinned, not one time. And what we're gonna see, I believe, are, is really the, the key that will unlock hope to escape temptation. What we're gonna see in, in Matthew 4 is we're gonna see exactly what Jesus did in the moments where he was tempted and how he escaped that temptation and the offer is still available for us because Jesus was tempted in every way that we are and he resisted the temptations with the word of God, without compromise. He didn't compromise who he was. He didn't compromise what he believed. He didn't, uh, he didn't compromise the mission that he was accomplishing on planet earth, even in the midst of the same temptations that we face. And let me tell you this about temptation. And then we're gonna go into the word. Every temptation, every, every temptation does this. It is a pathway. It is an invitation to live independently of God. Every temptation that has put your way, when you're tired, when you're lonely, when you're hungry, the very things that you need, all of those, those needs that you and I have, those are all opportunities, the perfect storm of temptation, if you will, and opportunities, pathways, in an attempt to live a life independent of God. And here is the scary part. This isn't just a non-Christian thing. This is also something for somebody who would call themselves a follower of Christ. Because you can be saved and yet live your life out of fellowship with God and and live your life independent of God. That's a scary truth. So the reason why we need to wrestle with this text today is is with the knowledge that's being presented on the screen right now. That every temptation is an invitation to live a life independent of God. Before we get into Matthew four, we're actually gonna look at the last verse of Matthew three. And uh, this will be on the screen. And this is, uh, here's the context of Matthew four, where we're gonna be. Um, this is right after the ministry of John the Baptist is kind of coming to an end. Uh, kind of the, the, the grand moment of John the Baptist's ministry is when he baptizes Jesus. This is right after the baptism of Jesus. And this, this voice comes from heaven speaking to Jesus, but audibly um, in, in this moment. And this is what was said. This is my son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. This right before we see the temptations of Jesus, the father affirms the son. He says, you are my son. You are my son. I am pleased with you and I love you. I want you to know this. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you are redeemed, if you are born again, this is how the father speaks of you. He doesn't speak words of condemnation over you. He speaks the word of, you know what? You are my adopted son or daughter. I love you. And he speaks affirming words of you. And he wants well of you. Now, as we see how Satan is going to try to speak against the Father's words here. Verse 1, we're going to look at uh, the 11 verses, but we're going to take them section by section looking at each temptation at a time and spending some time on it. It says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. I'm going to stop here for a moment, just for a moment. What we see here is who led Jesus into the wilderness, into the desert? The Spirit of God. Uh, within the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, there is a mutual submission in and among themselves. They all, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are all God, all equally God. Not, there's not a hierarchy. They're all equally God. And they're all, they all submit to one another. And that's what you see right here in verse one. It says, I'll read it again. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter, I told you last week, one of the names for Satan himself is is the tempter. One of the things that he does. The tempter came to him, that being Jesus, and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So Jesus is being led into the wilderness, to the desert, And could we agree that that typically is a lonely place? Could we agree with that? That that would be a lonely place. And oftentimes we, we mistake the word of God and we think, well, Jesus was just, he was just lonely in the desert. No, no, no. It says in this passage, he was there fasting, which meant probably in his context, he, I know that he was hungry, he had not eaten and he, to fast, it means this is kind of a, my working man's definition of fasting, is to remove your, or to, to eliminate food or something else from your life with the intended purpose of growing your relationship with Jesus, That's what fasting is. Oftentimes it's food. So somebody would have a set apart time and say, I'm going to, I'm not going to eat food for this amount of days or hours or, or, or weeks, even I'm not going to eat this food. And every time that I would feel hunger pains, then it would draw me into my connection with God. And I would trust in the goodness of God. And every time that I, I had the natural desire to be hungry and I would be reminded, Oh, you need food that I would go back and I would, that, that it would build upon um, the, the presence and knowledge of God in your life. So it, it's to deepen your relationship. So with that in mind, I don't believe Jesus was lonely at all. He was in communion with the father in the Holy Spirit. So I don't think he was lonely, but we do know that he was hungry. And we do know that in the middle of this, this is, the, the, this is the, the perfect opportunity, the perfect storm, if you will, of temptation, that he is alone. And when you're alone, when you're alone or you feel alone, that's a great opportunity to be tempted. But did you notice how the tempter then spoke to Jesus? Jesus. The first thing that that he had said in verse three, the tempter came to him and he said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And what Satan is trying to do is, if you're the son of God, he's challenging his identity, his position in Christ or in in God. He says, if you are really the son of God, prove it. If you are who who God says that you are, show somebody, do something, show somebody, make, make, make a big deal of it. Make sure that people notice. So he says, if you are the son of God, you've got to prove it. You've got to prove it. Of course, that's not true. And he says, and by proving, he says, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. What we're gonna see in these three temptations, and I'm not gonna spend a lot of time talking about this because this is gonna be something we cycle back to in the weeks to come. What you see is every time that, that Jesus was tempted in these situations, he holds captive the thought that's presented to him, the temptation that's brought before him. He holds it captive. He submits it to the truth of what he knows about God's word before he receives it into his mind and his heart, he submits it then to the word of God. And every time that these things are presented, Jesus counters that with the truth of God's word. This is the same thing that that we've talked about in in the weeks, or rather in in months gone by, we've talked about this in previous series. And that's what we're gonna talk about is how to actually win over temptation. And by looking at what Jesus does, this is the same thing that, that we ought to do. The first thing that's challenged is His identity. If you are the son of God, prove it. Turn them into bread. You'll be able to feed yourself. You have the physical need right now. Of course you do. You're hungry. Do something about it. Prove that you're God. And true or false, could Jesus have turned those stones into bread? Absolutely. But he didn't. We're gonna break these temptations down into three ways. And I think that are gonna become very real in our lives. And the first thing you're gonna see is the temptation of physical needs. Temptation of physical needs. Right here from this this particular temptation is the temptation of physical needs. It's the lust of the flesh. It's the lust of the flesh. And that's the temptation that, that Satan is offering to Jesus. It's the temptation to use his power selfishly. To use his power selfishly. And we're offered the same temptation in our life today. The devil, Satan, whatever you want to call it, he tempts us to selfishly spend our lives taking care of number one, taking care of ourself. This is the reason why that we are just intuitively, even as children, selfish, because there's just something that we're tempted to do because of the flesh that's in us that has to die so that we can live as Christ wants us to live, so we can do what it is that Christ wants us to do, and so that we can live the life victoriously that he promises and it's, it's these physical needs and all of us have them. All of, the, all of us, we have them and we need them. Jesus was hungry. Of course, he, he could have valued by having bread, but he knew there was more of a value by going into the word of God. Because he was fasting there for a reason and actually tells us in a parallel, pas- a parallel passage in the gospels that Jesus was-, was tempted not just three specific times, but he was tempted over and, over and over and over and over and over and over and over for 40 days and 40 nights. So this isn't like three times and oh, I've got this over with. This was a continual spiritual battle. Physically, the way this looks in everyday life, there's going to be some application and challenge here the way this looks in everyday life is is maybe a business owner who tries to just try and go out and get everything they can and just stomp the neck of all their competitors. And as long as they put enough money in the bank and as long as they build their business, as long as they have more trucks, as long as their business grows, and as long as their business looks more profitable than someone else's, then we physically just think we just have to gobble up everything and use it to our own value. There's such a temptation there. All rooted in selfishness, relationally, there 's a the temptation of devaluing friendships by overvaluing self, by devaluing friendships, and the Word of God tells us that a friend loves at all times, and if a friend is really a godly friend, a friend will tell you a difficult truth. I learned this the hard way. I learned this in a way that it really hit as, it has marked my life, and it literally set. My, my years, some years of my ministry, it set me back because I fell prey to this. A really good friend of mine that I grew up with all through, I mean, middle school years and riding skateboards together. And then we found cars and had cars and we worked at the same place for years. Um, we Ended up graduating. Both of us went into the Navy on the exact same day. We signed up at the same day. It means we both made the mistake on the same day. Like we went and did all that. We, we signed up to be... To go in to enlist on the same day. Not only that, we enlisted on the same day. We were actually we left to go to boot camp on the same day. We were in the same company in boot camp. This is my hometown friend. His rack was right across from mine the whole time through boot camp. Then after we got out of boot camp, we kind of went our different ways. He went to his duty station. I went to mine. I went to mine. We went to college. We found our way back to our hometown, and I thought we were just going to be chummy like we always were. All the while, while we're Back in this, my wife was telling me, you ought not to trust him as much as you trust him. You ought not to listen to him like you listen to him. You ought not to just be unguarded around him. And I thought, you know what? We've been friends a long time. You don't know what you're talking about. And I discarded her advice. Eventually, we're both in the hometown. We're both in, in the same church and we both are kind of rising in leadership within that church. Um, both of us are called to ministry, called out of that that servant ministry into full-time ministry. We're actually serving together in ministry. And then all of the things that my wife had told me all along the line, he doesn't care about you. He only cares about himself. He only cares about you, only cares about himself. And I learned that the hard way because all through that in his ministry, then he then leaves in to go to another ministry position to take a church. All the all the while, my wife's telling me, please, don't listen to him. You don't need to listen to him. On, you don't need to be so unguarded with him. There's something about this that is very suspicious. And it all came to a head when after some conversation with him and I started to see that he was doing some things wrong within his marriage and I started to realize that he was, he was trying to get out of his marriage and then he eventually would divorce his wife and he would eventually leave his kids and he would leave his ministry, still today does not have a healthy relationship with them and he ran off to be with his adulterous wife now. And all the while, then I was pleading for him. I, I, didn't, I didn't listen to my wife like I should have until it was too late. And then after he started to go down that road, then I'm texting him, I'm calling him. Hey brother, you've got this. Hey brother, you've got this, you've got this. And as soon as I confronted him, listen to me, listen to me. Some of you absolutely need to hear this. As soon as I confronted him with the truth of God's word, he wouldn't return my calls. He wouldn't return my text. He removed from me from all social media and he wanted nothing to do with me. And he hasn't ever since. Relationally, he was someone who was looking out for himself and he was unwilling to hear the truth of the word of God. Beware and be weary of those type of people in your life. It's devastating. It's devastating. We ought to always speak the truth in love and we ought to always be willing to hear uh, the truth in love. So relationally, uh, that's how these types of things work out. I gave you one example, just in a friendship, um, just selfishness. Financially, um, for us, we, we have to learn, and in accordance with the truth of God's word, Luke sixteen thirteen. all of us have to learn that we can't serve both God and money. So, there's going to be this tug to serve your own money because it serves your own needs and it fuels what you want to think that you're taking care of yourself and not be obedient with the finances that God has given you. There's, there's a tug, there's a temptation in that. Food, all of us are, in, in our culture, we're so tempted with food to overconsume and overvalue food. Food is not life. It helps to sustain our life. But we have to be careful when we're in a situation of loneliness, exhaustion, desperation, if we find our comfort in food. Because our comfort is to be found in Jesus Christ, not in the food that we consume. We have to be careful of this. This is falling into one of these patterns of selfishly spending our life taking care of ourselves because the the. the that comfort offers a false path and it's rooted in the temptation. Sexually, I think this is the greatest temptation in our culture right now. I think this is the the greatest temptation in our culture right now. We have such a sexually charged culture all around us. Everything about our culture, every commercials every single night are driven by this. There's the allure of social media that is driven by this. And I think for us, we have to be so careful and we have to be so surrendered to the word of God. If you're a Christian, you need to be so surrendered to the word of God to know what the word of God says about sexual temptation. So I'm going to spend some time on that. There's been some other questions about that. So let me just to kind of Left found, uh, just a foundation about where we're going to go. The devil tempts our flesh to use sex or a sexual act for his purposes. The devil tempts our flesh to use sex or a sexual act for his purposes. So, therefore, this is going to be talking more about just the, the literal physical act of doing something outside of the boundary of marriage. Speaking of marriage, God is glorified when a husband and wife find sexual pleasure within the boundaries of marriage. I can't make it any more plain to you than that. God is glorified when a husband and wife find sexual pleasure within the boundaries of marriage. This is not talking about one person dominating the other person or trying to dominate the relationship or to manipulate what they to get what they want. That would be the flesh. I'm talking about a good, healthy Um, the good healthy sexual practices and the pleasure that comes with that that is created by God because sex itself was created before the fall. That was God's idea, not Satan's idea. So this is something else that the word tells us about the body and and a phrase called sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 6.13 says this, the body is not meant for sexual immorality but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So the body is not meant for sexual immorality. In in these moments and about the things that I'm about to mention to you, I I just want to to caution you on something. Oftentimes when we see these words and we, we hear them in these circles or in groups, we think sexual immorality and we only think about the ones that we see that are hot buttons culturally. So so to avoid any responsibility in and of ourself, whatever the hot button issue in our culture is, that's the one we think, well that's what sexual immorality looks like. Let me just kind of paint a different and I think a more biblical picture onto what that is. Any sexual activity outside any sexual act or activity with someone or alone outside of the boundaries of marriage is sexual immorality any. So of course I'm talking about sex outside of marriage, sex outside of marriage, adultery, clearly defined all throughout the Bible, is sexually immoral. Premarital sex is immoral sexually. Pornography. So I, I found some statistics and it was just devastating to me Years ago before the electronic age and before every kid had access to to smartphones and to tablets and other devices, the the age that, that kids, boys and girls, would be exposed to pornography was around eleven to thirteen. Now that age, because of kids having access to the internet to the internet rather, researchers have shown, multiple researchers have shown now it's more like the age of eight. Eight? years old because parents are allowing their kids to have unlimited access to the internet and all that comes with it. So parents, I just want you, uh, first and foremost, I want you to, to know of a great resource. Um, just focus on the family. You can go online. There's a radio program all sorts of books, if you want to know how can I safeguard my children from the dangers of the internet while still giving them access to the things that that, that they can have access to, how can I do that the re, the, the way, one way you can do that is go to the ministry called Focus on the family because they they go to great detail addressing this issue of talking about well you don't have to be approved and just and, and have your kids live you know in electronic darkness, they can have devices, but they need the wisdom that parents can share. Because here's what I do know. If your kids have access to pornography at the approximate age of eight, they're gonna get the advice from someone about what sex is or what sex is not and all of the other sexual acts that go into those things. And they're either gonna get it from a boyfriend or girlfriend when they're 13 or 14 They're gonna get that advice there. They're gonna get that advice from a friend in seventh or eighth grade. Or you can give them the advice and you can give them the the whole counsel of God and speak into them from the word of God about what they ought to do. What advice do you want your kids to receive? Along with pornography, masturbation, that too in and of itself is a sexual act outside of the boundaries of, of marriage. That too is sexually immoral. That's what that is. And I've had people ask me about sexual immorality and, and what is it, Pastor? I, it just seems so vague to me. But I think once you actually look at a clear picture and a clear definition as to what um, sex is supposed to be, and God's intention that he's glorified when we find sexual pleasure inside the boundaries of marriage. Therefore, God is not glorified when there's sexual pleasure found outside of marriage. Then it brings us to a place of humility. And you should be asking the question, well, what am I supposed to do about it? And then the word tells us in, in 1 Corinthians six eighteen through 20, I'm only gonna read part of verse 18. It says we need to flee from sexual immorality, flee. It's pretty clear. So students, adults, young adults, we shouldn't ask the question, well, how far is too far? We should be asking the question, how can we put safeguards up so we flee from sexual immorality? Instead of saying, well, how far is too far? Is that, is that too far? What about that? Instead of asking that question to say, no, 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 what safeguards can we put in place? Therefore, we always flee from sexual immorality change our thinking, change our wording, change your life. The lust of the flesh, temptation, it, it ultimately draws us away from the will of God. Now to the big idea of this particular temptation, the temptation of our physical needs, the lust of the flesh. It's a temptation to draw us away from the will of God so that we would try and be our own God, that we would try and take care of everything ourselves. take care of number one. That's the first temptation. The second one we're gonna see as the passage continues, verse five. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, there it is again, an attack on his very identity. The the very thing that the father had just audibly said to him, that this is my son of whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. Satan goes right to that and he tempts him to not believe it. He says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and he will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. But look how Jesus answers the tempter. He says this, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan is twisting scripture and now he's, he's taking a particular scripture out of its context and he's saying, Jesus, what about this one? And Jesus does, he's the best theologian and, and the best way of understanding the scripture. He says, no, 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 you can't just look at this scripture isolated from all the other ones. And then Jesus says, I'm holding that thought captive. And he says, now I'm surrendering it to the father and what I know about the father. And he says, now look at this. And in compared to the other uh, part of the word of God, he said, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. The second temptation is this, temptation for power. The lust of the eyes, the the temptation for power. It's the temptation to use, it was the temptation of Jesus to use his power to impress people. Because if you look at this, at this, this particular temptation, The setting has changed. He's at the highest point of the temple, being able to see all of Jerusalem. And he says, just do something. Just throw yourself down. Just throw yourself down. He says, the angels are going to take care of you. Just throw yourself down. Just do something to prove that you're God. Just do something. Impress people with your power. You know, that's the same temptation we face. We are so tempted to try and do things to compromise what we believe to try and impress people. We're so tempted all the time. It's just a constant nag and a temptation for us to falter and to not believe what it is that God wants us to believe and do what it is that God wants us to do. And I believe in accordance with Proverbs 27:21 that a person is tested when a person is praised. Every time that a person is praised, you're going to be tempted to say, oh, to make yourself look better or to glorify God. And it's, this, it's the core of this temptation. So when somebody pats you on the back for something that you've done well or you've done right, who's going to get the glory for that? Who's going to get the glory for your marriage? Who's going to get the glory for how you're raising your kids? Who's going to get the glory for the redemption that's happened in your past? Who's getting the glory now for the life that you live? For Jesus. It's the temptation for power. Impress people. Impress people. The devil tempts us with material things that falsely appear to be better than God's goodness and faithfulness. Because the eyes of man are never satisfied. The eyes of fallen man are never satisfied that's Proverbs twenty-seven, twenty. The eyes of man are never satisfied. How much is too much? No, it's, it's never too much. As a matter of fact, how much is enough? Just a little bit more. It's because the eyes of man are never satisfied. This is the very reason why some of your families are in destruction right now is because you're caught up with material things trying to impress people who don't care and you're risking your whole family. And you live at work. And your family, your wife, your husband, your kids are so desperate for your attention. But the only thing that gets your attention is you trying to pad your bank account to impress people with things that you can buy. The devil tempts us with material things. And the very core of those things is this false appearance that they're better than God's goodness and faithfulness. I'll tell you a really silly example and is a commercial. Everyone has seen the Flex Tape commercial, have we not? Flex Tape, right? Like that is like the best pitch man of all time. I don't know what it is about that particular commercial. Every time I watch it, I just have this desire to cut a John boat in half. And then to tape it together in front and back and then like put it on the river. I mean, I just, it's just every time, it's just like something in me. I'm like, I just can't wait to get flex tape. I know it can be used for something. I've got to have this, this flex tape. It's because there's just this natural lure of, of material things. And although it's a silly example, I could give you a million more, a silly example. But, but here's, if you want to have a really fun activity, I think it's fun. Sit down with your kids and, and ask, ask these three questions of every commercial you you see on TV. Because every commercial is a temptation of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the pride of life. Every commercial is one of those three things. Every one. So now when you watch a commercial, just for fun, be able to pick out, oh, I see what that is. I don't really need flex tape, but I just just feel this desire. I've got to have flex tape. Then my life's going to be complete. Well then I have to have a john boat and a saw to cut it and and but you get the point. But every commercial is an opportunity, it's a temptation for the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh or the pride of life. The lust of the eyes is it draws us away from the word of God and it's to eat away at our confidence in the goodness of God. It's saying, you know what? You can't trust the Bible, it's not reliable. What you can trust in is how you feel and what you can buy to make you feel good, material things. The last one is the pride of life. Let's read verses eight through 11. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, Satan said, if you bow down and worship me. Imagine what Jesus saw. That no more is this just a dialogue with Satan. No more is this just on, the, on top of the, the temple looking at the, the city of Jerusalem and its surrounding area. Now he's up higher and now his vantage point is higher. And, and Satan says, if you will just bow down and worship me, everything you see will be yours. Everything. But look how Jesus... Counters that. He says, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. You see, the pride of life temptation is a temptation to do it yourself. And at the same time, that your unrenewed mind is convinced that you can and that you ought to and that you're better for it. So let me give you some examples of the pride of life. If you find yourself analyzing what everybody else is doing, and yet you're so convinced that you can do it better, that's the pride of life. When you push back from someone who delivers a truth to you about you, you just push back and be like, no, no, I'm not willing to hear that. That's the pride of life. When a president decides that they just want to blast everybody on Twitter and they take no personal responsibility for anything that he says... That's the pride of life. No presidents in here. When you take a defensive posture, when confronted with the hard truth, or when you are confronted with the hard truth and then you run away. You're like, I don't know who you think you are telling me that. You don't know me. Don't judge me. That's the pride of life. Pushing you away from the very truth that could give you life. If you come into a situation like this and your, your eyes are so caught on what everybody else is doing and what I say and how well the musicians are playing did I get greeted at the front door and was my coffee hot and was my donut stale? When you put all of the attention on that and yet you, you're so unwilling to actually sit over the word of God and receive it for what it is, but yet you're so busy judging and analyzing everybody else and everything else, that's the pride of life. And the pride comes before the fall. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride comes before the fall. That's the temptation. I can do it better. I don't need anyone. I can do it better. It's the pride of life. I could give a lot of other examples, but the pride of life temptations attack our obedience to God and ultimately our true worship of God because that's exactly what happens here when Jesus counters this false truth with the truth. He says, he says, away from me, Satan, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. That's it. So the pride of life temptations attack our obedience to God and a true worship of God. I wanna tell you this, um, just so you can have a deeper understanding of this. And I want you to understand of maybe how you feel and some emotional strongholds that then exist because of this. Because when one falls to temptation, we're surrounded with three negative strongholds. They that that could be so obvious in your life and here's what they are. The first one is when the pride of life, the pride of life, if you fall to the temptation or the pride of life, it will bring about fear. It'll bring about fear. The pride of life temptation, when you fall to it, it will bring about fear. The, the natural negative emotion stronghold that is created is fear. And that fear will then try and convince you that you don't need anyone. You ought not to get advice. You can do it better than them. So actually, so you just eliminate your all. If you, if you just take this to its, its, its logical end, the fear will drive you away from everyone or everything that will actually add value to your life. Secondly, the lust of the flesh is anger. And the idea behind this is God's holding out on me. Why is God holding out on me? I deserve better than this. I have to go be able to get this myself. I deserve it. Everybody else has it. I should be able to have it. Lust of the flesh, anger. And the last one, lust of the eyes, is shame. This is a war on on a Christian's identity in Christ. That's what this is. Because... Guilt and shame, I think, are the most prominent thing in Christians today. And the reason why Christians, I believe, my opinion, why Christians don't live victoriously is because they're stricken with guilt and shame. And maybe they don't know where they way out. So I wanna help you with the way out because what you should be asking is, well, Pastor, you basically just told me everything that's wrong with my life. So what do I do now? Um, Am I supposed to feel bad? Well, I mean, if... If, if part of that feeling bad is your conscience is stricken and now you know that you need to do something in regards to that, um, that's conviction and, and not condemnation. I want you to sense that, know that from my heart. But I do want to uh, lead you with this. This is not gonna be on, on the screen, but I wanna read this to you and maybe you wanna write this down because this is the way out of every temptation you'll ever fail or that you'll ever, um, that you'll ever encounter. This is the way out. James 4, 7 says this, submit yourselves then to God Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Submit yourselves then to God. See, you should be You should be asking yourself, well, what what does that mean, submit myself to God? I want you to think of it in this way. The way out of those temptations and when you fall into those temptations is to submit yourself before God and say, God, I'm so sorry that I did this. I have fallen short of your standard. I need your forgiveness. I need the cross of Christ. I need to have victory in this area. I admit that I've made my life a mess. I admit that I've I've looked at porn for way too long. I admit that I've made my marriage a mess. I admit that that I've committed adultery. I admit that I've, I've I've withheld forgiveness from people, I just admit before you God that I am broken and I am so in need of you, I cannot clean this mess up myself, then I would say, then you're submitting yourself to God. Then you're submitting yourself to God. And it says, if we submit ourselves to God and resist the devil, when we submit ourselves to God, then we can resist the devil. And then the promise at the end of verse 7 is, And he, Satan, the devil, will flee from you. I want you to live in victory. I don't want you to feel bad thinking, oh, now he just basically told my whole life story. I want you to live in victory. And the only way that you're gonna live in victory is if you submit that brokenness before God because he is the only one who can make your heart whole. How about stop trying to manage it yourself? How about stop, try, stop trying to just live your life for yourself? How about stop just trying to eliminate yourself from people who love you and want to speak the word of God to you? And how about you say, you know what? I'm just going to humble myself before God. I'm going to submit myself before God. And I'm going to say, God, I am broken before you. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm sick of pretending. I can't control it. My life is out of control. I need you, God. Because when we go to our knees, it is the best vantage point so we can look up. Some of us need to be on our knees before a holy God. And the only way you're going to get out of temptation, the only way, is to be surrendered to Jesus in such a way that you live a life that is submitted to Him. See, I. I don't even know how you came in here and, and what you're dealing with and, and maybe you're not even a Christian at all and maybe you just thought, you know what, you explained my life. And I just want you to know this if you're not a Christian. I, I want you to know that God the Father so loved you that he sent his son to die for you. You, personally. So that you would admit to him that you're a sinner in need of him to be your savior. And that you would just lay your life down before God and say, God, my life is not mine anymore. It is yours. The Bible says that when we submit to God, we can resist the devil. Then it tells us in the next verse, it says, and when we go before God like that, that he will lift us up. Would you stand with me? I don't believe that everybody in here is even a follower of Christ and I'm not gonna try and twist your arm to make you be. It's not the way it works. But I will say this, if there's something inside your heart right now, your heart is kind of racing, you feel like you need to make a decision, you feel like you're led to do something, there's something churning in you that you can't explain. Here's what I want for you. It's at the close of this service. Actually, even while we sing, I'm going to be right in the back. And if there's something, say, Pastor, I want to pray about something. I want to talk about, I want to talk to you about something. I want to be, I'm going to be right back there. I want to make myself available to you. If you want to come to Christ, I'm going to make myself available to you. For everybody else, if I just talked about all the temptation and and now you're, you're kind of struggling with the reality of that. Well, pastor, I just, I, I, I don't know where to start. Maybe the first place you should start is just to stop right where you are and just confess that brokenness before God. And maybe for you, maybe it's, it's even taking a step further. Maybe it's coming forward to the front of the stage and say, God, as the first act of not public disgrace, but public, just, just I wanna publicly acknowledge, God, that I'm, I'm just open and humble before you. Maybe you just come to, to the front and you just pray and you just seek the Lord. And I know that if you seek the Lord in this situation, you submit yourself to him, the devil will flee from you and you will be on the path to victory. I know it. I believe it. I've seen it. I've lived it. I don't know what it is that you need today, but what I do know is this. The cross of Jesus is the answer. The cross of Christ is the final word on everything and everyone. As we sing this song of praise back to God, I just, again, I just want you to know, just respond in the way that you believe that you're being led to respond. Make this a time of connection between you and Jesus. Father, we come to you today. I thank you for loving us first. I thank you that, God, that you that you knew that we would be prone to temptation, but yet you didn't leave us there. I thank you, God, that you've allowed us to, to live victoriously after battling spiritually. And God, you, you spur up courage and bravery in us to engage in these battles with your presence and not alone. We glorify you, Jesus, in that. Amen.